0: You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Sean Bell, a learning designer working in higher education. In this episode, we find out more about Sean's university studies related to both education and arts and their experiences as a high school teacher. We discuss Sean's postgraduate pathway, the completion of an honours thesis exploring the literary subgenre of Australian magic realism. Sean contrasts their own experiences as a generally disengaged high school student with the parameters and contexts typical of higher education where students usually have more freedom and autonomy to shape and determine their own pathway. We further explore how this greater learner autonomy in higher education might then relate to how educational programs and courses are designed, developed and delivered. Sean reflects on some of the practicalities of their university experience, including the various challenges of balancing work and study, the ideas that underpin the first in family concept and the so-called hyphenated literatures embodied by their Greek-Australian identity, being neither one or the other, but something in between. We also explore some of Sean's perspectives on cultural assumptions at university, especially those related to students who come from a background of privilege as compared to those from low socioeconomic status or from diverse cultures and how this relates to a student's essential rights to knowledge, education and learning. Sean outlines their day-to-day role as a learning designer and the practical tasks, challenges and considerations ranging from technical troubleshooting and problem solving through to those involving creativity, flexibility, and using new ways of doing things to design a range of sustainable educational solutions. Sean sees value in bringing a range of new perspectives and approaches to university systems in order to improve student experiences and outcomes. Sean outlines some of his aims as well as a range of tools, techniques and strategies he uses when designing courses. Sean draws on both established research and teaching skills in their approach, such as making explicit and coherent the skills, procedural knowledge and links between content so that students, especially novice learners, are well supported. Sean offers insights into the in-between experiences with academics, subject matter experts, students, and facilitators. Sean outlines their approach when designing scenario-based solutions and interventions, such as those involving large amounts of reading and other required course content, and how they use digital tools to address gaps and expand on opportunities for course improvement. Here's my conversation with Sean Bell. so sean it's great to see you again
1: thanks thanks so much for having me and um and for inviting me to do this it's so exciting to be involved in something like this
0: that's good so we're going to find out more about you and um what you've been doing all the way up until this point in time so uh you don't have to go back into your deep dark childhood or you know you, we could find out about high school we could find out about university yeah. or something just just pick a starting point and and maybe just uh get us up to speed with with um who you are what you've been doing
1: I, I feel like there's a David Copperfield joke in there somewhere I was born and or or something like that but um uh maybe maybe high school's an interesting point to start, I guess, because you know I've, I've ended up in learning design, which is a, a field I, I've loved working in for the last few years, um, and I'm in a great team at um, UTS, and I really enjoy working um, on the things we work on, but I hated school, and I was a terrible student. I was very, very kind of naughty in many respects, incredibly disengaged, disrespectful, um a, a disruption, you could say, in the classroom. So, you know, people, people who knew me back then are often kind of shocked that I I have ended up where I am, um, and that I did the things I did to to get here. So, you know, struggled in high school um and then loved university. I just, you know, I really took to that different style of learning and that kind of shift in approach. Um,
0: what, what is what is being, that? What is that different style I, of learning and shift in approach?
1: It's a great question. I think for me it was it was kind of being given a degree of autonomy in in the things I I could look at and how I could approach certain things, obviously within the, you know, within the bounds of what I was looking at. But you know, having so much choice in subjects and 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 to to give a bit of context, I did a Bachelor of Arts and Bachelor of Education combined degrees. And so the idea of that is basically you, you're teacher trained and, and there's a work experience component. Um, and, and it really funnels you into a, a secondary school kind of job. Now, the reason I did that wasn't because I had any particular passion to be a high school teacher, it was because being very much the first person in my immediate family there there was a concern about employment you know we weren't very well off and my parents gave very good advice I think for me to do a degree that had a bit of a a targeted um, professional or, or perhaps vocational approach so you know I thank them for that now but even within that degree program the Bachelor of Arts Bachelor of Education there was scope to do so much and I did a a varied mix of subjects. Um, kind of tried a range of things: linguistics and history. Would that be? Um, would, did, really, that come,
0: did that come with the um arts kind of uh, territory? I suppose they they kind of exposed you a, to a whole but, range of different things. Most
1: definitely, yeah. At that time, um, at that time, there was still quite a lot of freedom and choice in an arts degree i mean in a lot of institutions today that choice and 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 the kind of the variety of offerings is perhaps decreasing but you know when when i was doing my undergraduate there was just so much you could do, and some, you know, in both wonderful and and kind of maybe distracting ways. Uh, I didn't necessarily pick things in a targeted sense to begin with. I didn't really um, have a mind to any kind of cohesive study pattern in some respects, and that was kind of a good thing as well.
0: Um, how did you? you know, how did you decide, or how did you come across the different subjects? Then, what what was leading you? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's it kind of a, a really different mix in things, and and kind of I guess just touching on that on that personal background again. Work was always, and and I mean paid work was always a big priority. Um, my parents weren't terribly well off, um, very very generous with everything they had, always have been, but you know single income family, you know. Um, We all had to work. Me and my siblings all had to work. And I did pretty much full-time hours really all the way through my undergrad, you know, 30 hours a week, 35, 40 hours a week, not uncommon working in a retail bookshop. Um, So I I had to fit often the subject choice around that, not ideal, um, but that was a reality for me. And the the kind of the convenience element was something I had to think about So, you know, as a consequence, I did some pretty, pretty out there subject choices just because they worked best with my schedule, you know, um, being now someone who's gone through the kind of the academic circus and, and, and taught myself in that capacity, I kind of recoil at that, at that, um, at that idea that, and that kind of part of me is kind of shocked, but that is a consideration, the kind of the practicalities of life, needing money, being a young person, wanting things, that they're, they're all stuff that, that our students bring to the table. And when I was a student, that was a, Massive consideration of mind, that kind of practical element,
0: yeah. So, in terms of the um, education part of your qualification, what, how, how did that did, was that sort of at the end, or was it uh, side by side from the very get go? And then, did you start doing things yeah. like practice practice teaching, for example? Uh, what sort of subject areas were you yeah, yeah involved in?
1: So, um, it, it, I think. I could say now it's it's probably a, a fairly standard model for secondary school teaching in that did a, a combination of arts and education kind of theory-based subjects in those early years. And then at around year, kind of late year two of a four-year program, started to do some of that Um that practical experience element and, and that they were associated with subjects, but that subjects didn't really have any contact teaching contact hours. They were kind of your professional experience internship style um, subject. And, and for me, that involved um, a block of six weeks initially in a school and then later on a block of 10 weeks in a school. Um, and then around that in my fourth year, I did a Day a week across twelve weeks at a different school as well, so kind of various forms of of um, intensity of kind of engagement, I guess, in professional experience and different durations. So that that first shorter block um, was kind of more observational based. I don't I don't really think there was an occasion where I was left alone in a classroom on that shorter block, but by the end of that that later block was very much leading a class as would be expected by a kind of a qualified secondary teacher. Um, I was teaching in areas of English and history. And um, my kind of my, my time in those schools was mainly spent teaching uh, students both in the very early high school years. So year seven and um, year 12 as well. So quite varied in in that respect. Um,
0: And then what this theory that you mentioned, what, to what degree did you draw upon that with your you know what you were teaching was it like really relevant or not so relevant or you you could decide
1: no yeah yeah um to be to be honest at that point in time not that relevant you know by and large i was delivering um programs that other teachers or that the school did um, were, were were kind of delivering en masse to the whole to the whole year group. There wasn't really that much scope for kind of differentiation, um, or, and and what I mean by that is you know taking taking a set program and um, looking at the needs of your student body and modifying, varying, recreating those those um, teaching elements to better cater to that student body. So so there wasn't much scope for that kind of um, uh, freedom or creativity in in those very early years and and you know in those very early um uh, kind of teaching experiences as well i wouldn't say i consciously drew a lot on that early educational kind of psychology but now in my later career it's 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 really been of immense value to me um
0: but so what happened after just that- sorry what
1: happened after yeah yeah, what happened after? That's what a great happened question. when you
0: after you graduated and then up yeah. until now. Yeah, let's
1: doing? let's go. Let's go there. I'll love uh, I'll take a breath. Um so I I really kind of, I could say now with confidence and, and, and no shame either, wasn't really temperamentally suited to being a secondary school teacher. I didn't necessarily have the um, enormous patience that I think you need to work with young, younger people. Um, And I also didn't really have that passion that you need to, again, to be honest, put up with some pretty appalling conditions in a lot of our schools, you know, and, and, um, It's a shocking thing to say, but, uh, you know, I just, I kind of couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I I didn't see myself um, being able to deliver, you know, value, um, uh, quality education to students under those kinds of conditions. And I was very young. I was like 21, Uh, you know, it's kind of, kind of, uh, I I don't um, regret what I studied, but, you know, had I perhaps had my time again, that kind of infamous, that infamous sentiment, might have picked something other than than secondary teaching. So you know, what did I do? Well, I panicked. I kept working in the um, in the retail bookshop job that I so loved as a as a um, escapist reader from a very young age, um, and I, I got a letter out of the blue from university. I wasn't expecting it, and it offered me to do honours. And I thought, wow. Oh, What's this? First and foremost, I didn't know what honours was, kind of funnily enough.
0: Well, what um, is it? What but, is is honours for uh, those that are not it's familiar? A, it's, a,
1: it's a great question. It's a great question. So in our Australian system, a little bit, little bit different than in the US, it is in most cases an extra year of study that you do a research project, a kind of a self, self-directed self research project under the purview of a supervisor, an academic supervisor. And in many respects, it, it's a taster for what those um, uh, further research qualifications are like. So a master's by research or a PhD by research, um, the kind of work you'll, you, you'll do in, in, um, in, in that program. So, you know, if I did an honours in, in literature, um at UNSW and you know it it was really the most valuable year of my study it, what, it really
0: why, is that? why what happened because in
1: that year? It, it was it was you know it was transformative again having that shift that shift in learning style and approach being for the first time truly afforded absolute freedom within 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 the you know, bounds of a disciplinary area, you know, I had to keep what I was looking at relevant to literature. It was kind of object study related as well. So I had to pick a thing to study. But within those parameters, I could kind of come up with and look at anything I wanted.
0: And what, what I, was that I, that you looked at?
1: What did I look at? Yeah, what did I look at? So. It's um it sounds a bit out there now that now that I, I, I um, try and put it into into words, but but we'll give it a go.
0: Well, where all we have at the moment? We can <laughs> do an interpretive sort of thing, but words it's, are it's probably not preference at this point.
1: <laughs> yeah. It um it was looking at a kind of a Australian deployment or an Australian occurrence of a literary subgenre that it kind of found its genesis in 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 South America and that subgenre is magic realism and and that's kind of a it's a it's a generic term so it's 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 a way of describing uh, a body of work an area of work um, that's kind of sometimes related to speculative fiction and you know i always joke when i talk about speculative fiction that it it's kind of it's serious sci-fi fantasy for those who are too afraid to call it sci-fi fantasy. I'll get in trouble for saying that. That's on record now. But uh, you know, magic realism—it's in that domain. But the kind of the important thing, perhaps, about magic realism is that it often has a, a political valence, or it's—it's or, or it's messing with reality. It's—it's it's messing with representation to make a political point, something about um, the situation we're in.
0: So, so in terms of, like. People could probably guess that they're not if they're not familiar with that. Is it a genre, I guess, or a category? A genre? Genre? Yeah, it's a subgenre. Yeah, um, a yeah, subgenre. Um, what defines what defines this magic realism you speak of? What is it?
1: That, that's me? what I was. <laughs> that's what I was trying to get at in my honest thesis—an overly ambitious, perhaps prideful goal for an honest thesis to try and answer that question um, in a limited fifteen thousand word format. But I was—I was trying to look at that complexity, and and to be honest, it it is a kind of complex, up in the air question, which you know, um, the kind of the, the literary um, fields, literary scholarship. Quite like they're like those questions that sometimes don't necessarily have an answer, um, but the value is in kind of talking about it and thinking about it. So I'm, I'm hemming and whoring here. Sorry about that. Um, I'm hemming and whoring here for for a bit of a reason, and um, that's that's because they're kind of finding a a point wasn't the point, and and uh, coming to an answer wasn't really what was being tested. But it was kind of the argumentation, the, the the skill of how I um, brought a case um, and and responded to to that. So yeah.
0: So what um, was the case that you brought? Though, and I guess it's kind of what did you draw upon specific Australian literature, or is it kind uh, of? Yeah. Uh, would people know I what did. it is? Like, is it a is it a? No, a, no. Or is it? But it's definitely what. Well I, well, I guess it's fifty questions, but. We don't have time for fifty <laughs> questions. No, no,
1: the, no, So I guess um. To, sounds to like it's
0: between a, between worlds in a way. It's kind of neither, <laughs> not kind of brutal and of this world, but then it's not complete kind of uh, fantasy, kind of made up fairy tale. It's kind of maybe hovers that, in the middle. But yeah, I mean, that's
1: that's. A, I think that's a good way to, um, to describe what magic realism does sometimes. And, and you know, another way that people, um, you know, another, another way people often think about magic realism or a name that comes to mind for them might be, you know, Salman Rushdie, um, kind of a magic, a, a name that was often touted as a magic realist author, um, you know. But in our Australian context, there are a lot of writers who've had kind of magic realism applied to their works, and they've not necessarily always appreciated that. That that kind of identification, because of because of the kinds of uh, implications or suggestions it makes about them and their work. Um, I looked at two texts that you know I I, I wouldn't say are very well known, um, and they're, they're kind of quite odd texts. But I looked at them because they both kind of in various ways took on that that magic realist identification and and played with it as well as part of the. Uh, the the work they made that question almost uh, a part of the work and and the navigation of that kind of genre genre um, uh, parameters or genre play a part of the work um, and so that one of them was a book called Kadicha's Son um, by and I hope I've got this right memory serves Sam Watson um, a very interesting and weird but but kind of also quite. Violent and and um, traumatic book as well in some respects, um, and the other book was by Glenda Guest, and 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 that was called Sit and Rock, and that that book very much you know I think it was written as part of a master's thesis, so it very much kind of embraces and plays with the magic realist appellation. But you know, I was interested. In them, because they both engage with, um, you know, the, the kind of the first cultures of Australia in, in really interesting ways and um, ideas of indigeneity and um, kind of in, in some respects maybe in terms of Glenda Guest's book, ideas of appropriation too. And you know that that was something I became very interested in in my honours year. These kind of theories and ideas that. Um, push up against the boundaries of convention. So to, to explain that a bit in my context in literary studies, we often teach by or learn by what's known as the canon, the canon of literature. And it's this idea or sometimes even a, 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 a specific list that there is a body of work, a body of, of um Texts and authors who exemplify a, a particular way or a particular um, thing that needs to be taught. And when I started my honours study, I started to um, engage with some theoretical ideas like um, the idea of post-colonialism, the theoretical idea of post-colonialism, and um, some of the theori- theoretical ideas in critical theory and gender theory that that really... Kind of um, complicated that linear, traditional, canonical view of literature for me in a way that was quite radical and I think very important. Um, so that that's kind of where that honors work kind of took me, and and I really enjoyed um, the the course of my honors study, you know, even though I, for parts of it kind of didn't necessarily know what I was doing and it was kind of, you know, trying to figure it out on the go, but I really enjoyed it and and I did quite well. Um, and and so I I took up the opportunity to do a PhD. I, I was very, very, um, lucky and grateful to receive a scholarship, which enabled me to do a PhD. Um, Although that being said, you know, I still I still worked full-time during the PhD as well, but you know, it enabled me space to to do a PhD. And I I kind of continued on a similar track, but I I, I did something a bit different for my PhD studies. And I I looked at my own kind of cultural background. So I come from a, a Greek Australian and, and Anglo-Australian cultural background. Dad's a migrant here and um both mums, parents, my Papu, were migrants here. Um, and so I was really interested in those kind of, you know, what you might call hyphenated literatures. What do I mean by that? Well, I'll explain. You know, all, all the wonderful multicultural groups that have come to Australia have brought things with them Um both kind of good and bad in many respects. And one of the things, the kind of the bad things that they've brought with them isn't something they've really brought with them, but something they've experienced. And that's kind of racism. And in my my kind of Greek Australian context, it's really fascinating when you look at the Greek Australian writers of the seventies and eighties battle up against this need to try and identify themselves or explain themselves. And this idea of hyphenated literature came up at that point that I really liked this idea that you were neither Greek, neither Australian, kind of something in between, something, something different, a unique experience that kind of also wasn't unique because there were, you know, hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands of other kind of hyphenated Australians. Um, So I guess, how did I get from that kind of studying, you know, studying what I was studying to, to into learning design? Well, you know, I, again, I was kind of really interested in those those kind of outsider perspectives and 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 um, different takes on on kind of ways of doing things and and, and kind of um, uh, standard narratives for things. I was really interested in that, but I kind of couldn't make a life out of it. And um, that kind of practical consideration really came to bear as I came toward the end of my um, PhD studies, and I. I needed to find um, employment, you know, there there were kind of practical constraints around um, academic contracts and, and kind of not a lot of available work in my field, teaching literature. Um, And I was like really lucky enough to, to um, be told of a a job doing um, something that was called educational development, which is a, you know, like another term that's used for learning design or instructional design. And, um, I, I started working in that space because they um, kind of wanted people who'd had teaching experience, you know, um, experience delivering subject content, and also people who had a bit of research experience as well, who'd had experiences. Um, as, you know, what they call subject matter experts. Um, So I I started working as a educational developer and really just loved it. It it was a great combination of a lot of the things I liked doing before, you know, it was, I had freedom to kind of explore things within certain parameters and try and come up with new and exciting ways of doing things. Um, I had the kind of the the great luxury of working within the uh, tertiary education sector which you know is a sector I um, really feel passionate about and I feel passionate about contributing to public education so that was something that I really enjoyed and um, I really enjoyed the kind of the feeling of creativity and flexibility as well in working in a kind of a teaching and learning space because you're always going to be confronted with with kind of a new problem or a new way of doing something or a new way of thinking about something and you you kind of have to respond to that.
0: You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Okay, I managed to follow most of what you were saying in our earlier part, but I guess there seemed to be a consistent thread of this idea of balancing or two in two worlds. But then I'm just wondering how does that all relate to your day job which is as a learning designer because um, yeah. clearly you've got lots going on conceptually. You're interested in lots of really interesting things, but then we've all got to pay our bills. So, I mean, how do you, how do you sort of talk us through some of your experiences?
1: So my, my day-to-day work involves um, responding to um, problems and meeting with people um, Kind of stakeholders um, related to uh, student learning experiences, and and that might be in different um, different scenarios for different kind of um, learning contexts. So, like you know, uh, masters programs or short short course products or micro credentials. So so kind of learning experiences or learning moments of various sizes. Um, and in terms of kind of responding to. Kind of problems that might be, you know, as simple as a, an academic sends an email because something might not be working, or more complex, like you know, an, an academic comes comes to us for assistance because they've had um, less than satisfactory feedback, perhaps, or or students aren't necessarily understanding something about their um, their subject experience, or so there's there's a there's a problem that they would like, uh, you know, an additional set of eyes on. Uh, if I might use the turn of phrase, an outsider perspective, potentially. Um, so, that that's kind of something that I quite like about what I'm doing now. I feel like I'm able to bring some of my experience um, in subject delivery from my own kind of professional background to bear on some of these issues or these problems, um, while at the same time having to take a bit of a, a practical approach. I have to come up with a solution to something not working or, or to a, a particular um, problem situation and um, do it in a way that's kind of manageable for the person delivering the subject to, to do in, in the course of their teaching and sustainable so it's it's you know it's not going to require heaps of hours every time the subject runs to get it to get it going um
0: so just to clarify when you say you, you say solving a problem what's the actual outcome what's the deliverable or the thing that you can see and um get your hands on or is actually yeah. on the screen and figuring they're all e-learning uh courses of some sort but uh, or at least in that realm,
1: yeah. That, so it's 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 kind of varied, but yeah, the majority of the the kind of the deliverable um, work I do is in the design of uh, learning sequences um, or learning experiences of kind of various um, size and intensity. So it might be, you know. For for one kind of problem context, it might be the matter of designing just a couple of components to complement an already existing page. Or it might be developing whole new pages, multiple pages of content with videos and bespoke activities or, you know, the kind of the, large, the, the largest thing I've worked on is is kind of rethinking a whole program. So so a, a whole suite of courses within a within a degree program and thinking about how um, rethinking about how they're delivered and and kind of opportunities for um, interesting design interventions across that. So kind of things of various sizes, but but at its most simple. Yeah, it's 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 I work in Canvas, so it's a learning management system. It's where the university um, hosts and delivers a lot of students online learning, but also a lot of the resources that support blended learning. So, that's learning that's both um, face-to-face and includes a, hy- a hybrid online component. Um, and so, some of the things that I, I develop in the course of, of, of that work are, as I mentioned, videos. So, you know, um, they might be scenario-based videos or, or little uh, concept mini lectures. Um, I also develop or, or help develop um, page copies, so the text that's on the page, and and that kind of um, what we call teacher talk in my team. But that's that kind of signposting and teacher presence and instruction that goes around the content. Um, and we also design activities using a, a variety of. Um, Tools. So H5P is one tool that we use a lot at UTS. Um, we also use, um, you know, um, other other kind of tools like Genially, which is another online authoring tool that lets you make little um, movable and interactive objects. So there's 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 a kind of a, a, a range of um, design work, but then sometimes there's more um, kind of problem-solving work, troubleshooting work, and that's kind of that workflows kind of maybe analogous to even an IT ticket kind of situation you know you get an email with the problem and you will have to try as best you can with the person with the problem to figure out what the issue is and respond to it in in real time and and usually quite quickly the goal is to to get it sorted quite quickly so that's kind of a, a, another another side of the work i do so um you know, thinking about that, maybe picking up that thread or that idea of like a hyphen space or a middle space, sometimes I feel like I'm a, a in between for academics, content experts, and kind of uh, university priorities that often kind of uh, administrative or practical kind of side to things.
0: And then how do you, um, like, I guess what's involved in a typical, if, if there is a typical situation. Like what's involved in the dynamic? Because generally, the, the academic would traditionally be running their own um, courses. And so all of a sudden, they've got a different person in the mix. And so are you in an advisory role or are you following instructions or maybe a little bit of both? And then I guess, can you talk us through a... Uh, an example, maybe a worked example, or a sort of something that was particularly curly—that was a problem that yeah. was solved—and and then how do, how do you branch out into this sort of these other areas of thinking?
1: Yeah. So as I said, you know, it's it's quite a varied role, and and you need to be flexible in how you respond. In many respects, I like to think of it as a kind of a client services role. You know, you are you are there to support the needs of the facilitator um, and the student as well. The student is kind of another a client or a stakeholder you have to keep in mind. Um, Ideally we meet with academics in quite a structured way and we work with them in this structured way within the kind of the set goal of potentially looking at a subject or um, a, a section of a, of a, of a program and we'll, we'll try and meet with them regularly and come up together with a, a kind of a program of work or a program of development in which we we, we try and look at what the subject needs based on data and impressions, um, look to any opportunities to improve the student experience and then try and roll that out in a way that is um, achievable within the times the time that we have available to us um you know a really a really um good example that i'm i'm quite um i'm kind of quite proud of feel feel um, free
0: to de-identify any uh anecdote if needed yeah
1: yeah yeah so so you know one example um that, that comes to mind is it's um it's kind of a small intervention in some senses. We're we're really on paper, only making a few videos and only kind of editing a few pages. But I feel like the value that it's bringing to students is is quite large because it's helping them look at a problem um, within their discipline in a new way. So, um, in this in this kind of faculty area and this disciplinary area, students are required to be across huge amounts of content. It's 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 kind of alarming the 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 culture within this um, discipline that the, the kind of expectation um, that students will consume large volumes of reading, they'll they'll kind of know it kind of end to end, or or they'll be expected to pretend they know it end to end. Um, and they have to have quite immediate recall of some of these things and be able to respond in, in their own kind of uh, professional work when they graduate. They have to respond um, in a very professional, quite serious kind of manner. And so, we had this complex kind of situation where we needed to deliver huge amounts of content information content material but it wasn't really engaging content it it, it was kind of content that that um, i think a person might struggle to 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 use a metaphor to consume okay. so how what did you do how did we, how did we do this? We we um, kind of transformed and and you know thinking about my disciplinary back debt background, we transformed the narrative. We 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 shifted how students were engaging with the material by making it scenario based um, rather than mean? kind of making. What does that mean? Yeah. So um, previously, students were kind of presented this material not not without context, but it was kind of like here's here's the history of the thing, the thing you have to read now go and read it, whereas we were looking in our rethink for opportunities to provide a, a bit of a narrative hook to get students engaged, but also to, to put a bit of coherence to how they're engaging with these, these long documents or these procedures or these rules by putting it into a into a scenario, an invented person who uh, an invented client who they would engage with as an inma- an imagined professional, and along the touch points of that engagement, we then kind of um, put in these this content that they'd have to learn about through this kind of uh, the further problems of this character that we kind of we kind of titled these various um, resources and activities. So, you know, in some respects, it, it seems like quite a small intervention, just a few videos, just a few pages, but my opinion is getting the academic to see the value and importance in shifting the model that, and the way that students are engaging with that information. I think that was a really um, kind of important intervention that I'm, I'm quite happy with. And I think it's, it's um, already um, delivering outcomes to students who, you know, have reported that they're finding information um, more easy to retain. Um, and the academic has already reported that students' um, assessment marks have improved ac- across, the, um, across the course of the semester.
0: Yeah, it is um, it, it is really important just to acknowledge that all of this is happening within a context, like a workplace context or where there's parameters set, some of which are not negotiable. Uh, you need buy-in from – well, more than buy-in, you need the support and the, the kind of get-go or the, the, the kind of the yes from the academic. Otherwise, the whole thing would, would wouldn't move forward, I would imagine – Oh, I don't that's have the illusion, but you know,
1: <laughs> that's such a good point, Mark. And, and um, I think it goes back to what I was saying about this. The kind of work I'm doing is very much, in some respects, a, a service service based job, and and you have to be re- respectful and um, conscious of those constraints. Um, you know, I, I talked before about sustainability, um, and and when I think about sustainability, I also think about you know. Is what you're building or is the solution that you're coming up with, is it actually achievable? Is it is it actually something that's going to add benefit to students and, and make everyone's life easier? So I'm, I've spoken a little bit already, I think, about, you know, um, sustainability and practicality. And a lot of this goes back to, you know, my experience as a university student. I wasn't someone who who um, had had a really any idea of what university was um, Work was going to be like the process of actually studying that kind of individual process, and I was often shocked at the expectations of my um, academic teachers and facilitators for you know what they thought I could achieve within the space of a week. Um, I've kind of, <laughs> I've kind of continued to be shocked by that even into That's my funny.
0: Uh, professional up, life. You're a stand-up <laughs> You're <very> funny. Yes. <laughs>
1: Uh, that's that's something that I really do try to bring to my to my work as a learning designer, that 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 focus on a practical solution, a practical framework that's not gonna already burden overburdened people, both teachers and students alike.
0: You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So we've heard about lots of different ideas earlier on, and then you've kind of outlined your role as a, a learning designer in a in higher ed. And you know, I understand that sort of territory. But I mean, what's the where's all this leading, or what's the kind of what what value does it have?
1: Thanks, Mark. Um, you know, I I think there's a, there's a couple of threads I want to I want to take up here, and and maybe. Um, Stitch together, and that might that might help the audience understand some of what I've been talking about as well. Um, you know, I, I mentioned before that I, I kind of didn't really um, excel in my schooling, and you know, I I recall often hearing my parents bemoan the fact that, you know, teachers would say I was a bright but lazy student or that teachers didn't get me or that, or that you know, I, I wasn't applying myself. All those typical things that so many people hear, you know. Um, and I kind of had a similar experience at points in university when I was asked to do things that kind of really didn't make sense to me as someone with my background and someone with my um, with my experience, you know, not coming from a world that that didn't really um, have much cultural understanding of Western tertiary educational norms or really much kind of um, open discussion in our family kind of context and our home context of some of the things that I would come across in my um, arts-based education. So, you know. Um, those grand theories and, and, and kind of ideas of that nature kind of wasn't, wasn't something we talked about at home. So I've come out of that experience, I think, you know, almost shockingly successful kind of, I, 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 as a student who kind of didn't really, um, Gel with the school system, and and a and a um, early career researcher who kind of struggled against the constraints of academia, um, and the kind of the um, the drive to to do more with less, and all of that. I'm, I'm kind of you know I'm I'm proud of myself that I've come out the other end, but I feel like there are some. Lessons learnt that people of my experience and experiences like mine can bring to the betterment of higher education.
0: What can you tell us? Bring it on. <laughs>
1: I think for so long in, in Australia and, you know, and the, uh, the Anglophone sphere, so, you know, the English-speaking world um, globally, universities were the purview of the privileged. They were a elite space. Um, and, you know, for a time in Australia, we had the immense benefit of publicly funded university education and publicly supported university education, but it still requires a degree of privilege and and, and privilege that I acknowledge I've had in in being able to go to university. Um, And I think it's an immense loss to not find better ways to bring those people outside the university system, bring their knowledge in, because knowledge isn't produced in universities. Knowledge isn't the sole purview of academics. Knowledge and education and learning is something we all have an essential right to. It's all something that, that's our inheritance as as people, as humans. And I strongly believe that people from, you know, that horrible, horrible term low socioeconomic backgrounds, people from low socioeconomic backgrounds and diverse cultures and and um and 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 other areas of, of our society have a right to Contribute to knowledge production and and to participate in learning and teaching as well. Um, so that's that's something I try and bring to my work. I try and bring a a perspective or a a view of that potentially underserved student body. And and I don't mean the HD plus students, the students who come to university and do well at university. I mean those who drop out. Who who don't turn up to class because they're working or they've got kids or they've got care responsibilities, um, people who who disengage because they don't have the assumed prior knowledge that academics think they do um, about you know maybe maybe. Um, uh, underlying cultural assumptions or or, or the examples that are used in in their teaching or even the way they're talking about things, um, you know. So I'm always interested in those student groups and those demographics and what we can do to improve their outcomes because I strongly-
0: I'm wondering, what's what's something in your learning design toolkit that you, you know, like a superhero or something, grab something out of the bag, (laughs) you know, or I wish. You, no, I wish. <laughs> is it is <laughs> it kind of like just um, big picture thinking, or is it are there actual tools, techniques, exercises, strategies that that you've if, seen yeah. have potential in this? Because I yeah. think, I yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to hear more about that.
1: Most definitely, there are there are fantastic kind of um, practical processes and tools that um, university teaching and learning. Um, teams and researchers have been using, you know, um, over time. And, you know, I just want to say I am in no way the first person doing this kind of work or bringing these kinds of things up and there's fantastic research on this that I, you know, really in encourage people to engage with. And, and you know, a, a, an area I'm quite passionate about is something called, um, you know, first in family, um, first in family students and, and kind of so sort of just by way of example, that's kind of one area that kind of engages with this. But yes, in, in terms of, you know, an approach or, 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 or what I do, um, I think it really is as small as bringing another perspective to something that usually the academic facilitator has been working with, often by themselves, for many years. And, and, and they have been doing their very best, but they are, again, often under-resourced individuals with, with, with multiple imperatives on their work time. And I think sometimes just being another person who knows a little bit about the space, Who has a little bit of experience doing what they're doing and starting a conversation with them about? Their um, their teaching and about their students learning um, can be really generative. It can be really really helpful for them. It can help them unpack. You know, there are some there are some actual kind of like digital tools that I like to use in the course of this. Um, and you know, I was introduced to a great um, a great digital tool called Miro by a colleague. But it's essentially a whiteboarding tool, um, and and just the process of of um, outlining or creating an overview or a structure or visualisation of the subject can sometimes help people identify gaps or opportunities. Um, sometimes developing a, you know, a macro, which is a similar idea, but it's a, it's a, like a representation of a student's study path over the course of a semester. And, you know, key, key touch points or key points of intensity For their learning, that could be really helpful because you know it can it can let you see things that you might not have um, seen before. Potentially, there's a there's a gap in the way you're delivering content, or you're not getting to content when you need to be to help best students to best help students with their assessment. And and sometimes these things just happen if especially if you've been teaching. Um, a, you know, in an area for a long, long time. I think academics who are experts, or anyone who is an expert in something, perhaps maybe they can forget what it's like to be a novice, and and they might not necessarily always be people who are best placed to know what a novice in that area, what a novice learner necessarily needs. Um, going back to that example I mentioned previously, you know, working in a disciplinary or professional context where students were expected to read huge amounts of things, something that I was always shocked by was the the kind of uh, privately acknowledged reality that people skim, but it was never made explicit to students in the course of their learning. I think that's unkind. That That's something, you know, that, that for example, is, is a bit of kind of privileged or secret knowledge that why, why, why hide that from students? Why, why make that a secret thing if it's something they're going to need to do when they're out, kind of quote unquote, in the real world?
0: Yeah, I like the spirit of how you're outlining that, where it's uh, made quite explicit, so that students can just get on with it and be well supported in what they meant to be doing, rather than having it this obscure. Sometimes I've had conversations with them. Um, not so much academics, but subject matter experts, and then I'll propose similar kind of approaches. and they've said, "Oh, but no, well, that would just be letting give it like helping the student um, you know, do their assessment. And I thought, well, yeah, that that's what we're here for. That's kind of what's the point, but it's this sort of cultural, almost assumption that oh no it has to be as hard as we can make it they have to work really hard so you kind of hide all the clues or or something along those lines which is just ludicrous
1: the um the listeners won't be able to see me vigorously kind of shaking my head and raising my eyebrows in agreement but i i have heard those um sentiments echoed exactly this 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 kind of Idea that we're we're giving the game away by making explicit kind of uh, procedural knowledge, so you know ways of doing things to students, or, or giving them really clear articulation of the links between what they're learning now and what they're going to learn later, and the goals that kind of a al- curriculum alignment work that um, takes place as part of learning design. Um, but that that I really do rail against that that attitude, and it's it's something that. You know I might even say as a personal vendetta of mine, this kind of treating students as an adversary or as an enemy rather than as a a partner in learning. You know, we are at our best moments, I think, learning together and from each other as 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 educators and and students. Um, and I think there are ways to make that more possible by having a bit of a mind to some of the practical realities of the way our students kind of are having to engage with, with, um, with their learning experience. So, um, I think, you know, I think, um, I've gotten a bit fired up. I've, I've spoken a little bit about my biographical, um, uh, background. I've spoken a bit about my research, um, and, you know, what that, I think what I feel that's brought to my perspective on learning and teaching, you know, I think fundamentally lot of the, a lot of the ideas I've talked about, you know, um, making things explicit and coherent, um, showing students how they're learning, when they're learning, why they're learning, um, you know, making students a part of, of, of a learning um, journey as well and, and you know, bringing, bringing their um, feedback into your design of learning. I think all of that is also just good pedagogy. It, it, it kind of really improves the outcomes for every student. Not just those students who are, you know, often often termed underserved students, but it's this idea that in lifting up some will lift up everyone, um, and isn't that the goal of education to kind of improve our lot for for everyone? Um, that that's that's kind of you know something I I, um, I think is really important to remember in in. Um, you know, discussions about education as well. It's it's we're often driven to um, think about the value, the kind of the dollar value of education or the dollar value of certain degrees. But I think it's actually the process of learning that's that's really of of most value because you know, as that old saying goes, you know, give a person a fish and you fed them for one day, but teach a person to fish and you've kind of fed them forever. teach a person to think you know don't don't tell them what to think teach them how to think
0: in this episode i chatted with sean bell a learning designer you can find out more about this episode in the show notes thank you for listening to perspectives in parryville